This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Well, good morning, everybody, on this beautiful Saturday, uh, once again in San Diego where the sun is shining through the windows and uh, through the little mermaid sitting on a crescent moon in the window at our friend's house where we're at in Kelly Morales, San Diego. And Ahano, it's after Christmas, and I'm sure everybody is glad it's over on one hand. On the other hand, we had a fantastic day, didn't we, with being with the children and my grandchild for the first time in a long time and being living here now so we can be around them all. And family is uh, really, really important, isn't it, Ahano? That's right, and it was all the more special, of course, for those of you who are in any way spiritually aware about the 21st of December because we had such fantastic feedback from people all around the world about the wonderful change in energy, that great shift that everybody was building up to for the last number of years, indeed millennia, actually, waiting for this particular time. Many, many people, of course, reported great disappointment and a sadness and um, a kind of a feeling of, well, what was that all about? Was that just another Y2K nonsense? And we had a lot of that too. But the reality, of course, is that those that have eyes to see and ears to hear will indeed be aware of those very, very subtle but absolutely wonderful changes. So here we are in a new millennia, a new 26,000-year period, a whole new situation, and it's all about making those right choices making those choices, well actually I say right, making any choices you like, but make the choices for consciousness, for awareness, for that growth of spirituality. And that's the subject of our conversation today. Actually, we have a wonderful guest today, Penny Kelly, and she discusses all kinds of things, consciousness, cognition, perception, and intelligence, and is a writer of over six books. But we will get to Penny very, very shortly. It is indeed a wonderful thing to be alive at this great time of change. Speaking of a time of change, Angel Rose, of course, as you all know, is the author of a book called The Time of Change, and she is in the middle of writing her second book called The Nature of Reality, and we will be giving out details about those in due course. You're listening to the Honest to God series with Angel Rose and Ahanu on the 29th of December. We're broadcasting out at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Mountain, 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern, and of course for our friends in Europe, 3 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Yes, and if anybody would like to call in today, the number is 805-292-0349. I'm really excited about our guest today, Ahanu. Um, my friend Linda Lavin from upstate New York forwarded me this article a few months back called Getting to Enlightenment. And I have to tell you that I don't often read all the articles that come to me. There's so many that I file them away in a different folder and say I'll get to them someday. But this one, once I started reading it, I was just spellbound with with the story, with the information, 
and this is when I wrote Penny and asked her, would she please come on the show and talk to us about her experience because I found it so fascinating. So I can't wait to start talking with her, Ahanu, and um, get underway with this because I'm sure our listeners will find what she has to say so interesting. Well, I'd like to say that the introduction that we sent out to our listeners and the introduction that we put on the radio show was really, really nothing in comparison to the amount of valuable information that we're going to cover today and the experience that Penny Kelly has. And what we put out was the fact that we discuss the spirituality of Penny Kelly. She was a writer, a teacher, a consultant, a speaker, a publisher, and she's a naturopathic physician. And she's been researching and exploring consciousness, cognition, perception, and intelligence for over 30 years, and has written six books of her own, while at the same time publishes books on the subject of spirituality and health for others. Now, all that is all very ordinary. All that's all very 3D. I mean, as, 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 as educated and wonderful as she is, there's actually a huge depth of spiritual growth underneath everything she does. Let's bring on Penny Kelly. Hey, Penny, how are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? It's good to be here. Good morning, Penny. I'm so glad you could join us today. I am, too. Thank you for having me. It's great. Penny, would you start by giving our listeners a little bit of your background. I know we have it all written up here, but could you begin by telling people, well, what you would perceive as your story? Um, I think probably it's pretty ordinary up until about the age of 31, uh, maybe 33, somewhere right in there. Um, you know, I was raised Catholic, you know, I'm Irish and German, etc. All that stuff. Um, you know, I, about the age of 31, you know, I was working at Chrysler. I was an engineer for Chrysler. And I had this massive experience called Kundalini. And it changed everything. Um, I now own a farm in southwest Michigan called Lily Hill Farm and Learning Center. And uh, have been here for about 25 or 6 years, maybe. I... Uh, became, once I got here to the farm, I had already had the Kundalini experiences, but my experiences with the land began to open up, and nature spirits, elves, all of that, <clears throat> that I had never, never considered to be real or worth an ounce of time and energy, um, suddenly became just in my face, and so that took me in some new directions, um, I started uh, communicating with the land. I began to realize that what the earth needed, uh, in terms of ordinary things like vitamins, minerals, you know, etc., was the same thing that the human body needed. And to heal one, you know, you do the same thing in either direction, to the body, to the plant, to the animal, or to the soil. And so, you know, doors began to open even further. Um, you know, for me, the, the background has been my life before Kundalini, um, which was pretty ordinary, children, marriage, etc., and then my life after Kundalini, in which the entire 
spectrum of consciousness was available nonstop, 24 hours a day. There's no sleep in that period, etc. And the result was that I dropped everything I was doing and returned to school thinking that I was going to study consciousness and perception and cognition and all those things. And um, there really weren't any good courses at the university. I was in Detroit at Wayne State University. And so I struck out on my own. And that's been my life for the last 30-some years, 33 years, I think, um, has just been studying. I set a course of study each year, and I uh, assign myself some reading. I assign myself some perceptual work. Uh, usually it's pretty intense. I keep notes like crazy. Uh, and those notes are dated and timed and in sequential order, and I create an index of what was happening when and where, et cetera. And then I study that and practice. And the result is sometimes you come to a big aha. Sometimes, you know, I've, I've studied things as mundane as geography and the relationship between geography and gross domestic product or um, income, personal income. And I've studied things like telepathy and planes and dimensions of reality, et cetera. So it's been quite varied. So that's my life in a nutshell. I do a lot of counseling um, all around the world, and I'm still writing. So that's that's it. Well, I grow could, a lot of vegetables. We could do the whole show just on what you just told me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But I do want to go back to your Kundalini experience because you, you said that you were living a pretty ordinary life, and then suddenly you had this experience. So can you can you talk to us about what might have triggered that and what that experience was like oh boy um okay yeah i i would say if i had to put uh you know put the whole thing in a as a language that people could understand that i had zero background in spirituality i was catholic but that doesn't mean that i knew anything about spirituality and there was this absolute ignorance of anything that had to do with metaphysical. I was not involved in that. I, I didn't even know that such a field existed, number one. And so I was totally unprepared. There was nothing that I was doing or trying, or et cetera. I was just going to work, raising my children, um, you know, and having a love affair. And I think it was really and truly that I stepped into a place, a moment of total love, unconditional love, and total presence to the moment. And the fact of the matter is that you, if you do that, then you open the door to something that's built into the human being. And it's this opportunity for what I'm going to call the energy of synchronization to move through you and that energy um, it was at the time I didn't know you know what it was called I didn't know it was kundalini it took me about three years to figure out that it was this thing called kundalini but what happened and this gets kind of personal here but I was in the middle of making love and all of a sudden in, in fact had just gotten started <laughs> you know, wasn't even really doing anything. 
and there was this sound that sounded like a roaring sound. That We lived just down the road, maybe a half mile from Selfridge Air Force Base, and my logical thought was, oh, there go the jets, which when I thought back on it made me chuckle. I was like, wow, that was some jet, all right. But this roaring sound, and then there was this shaking, and I thought, oh, we're having an earthquake. And then this feeling, this, I'm, I, I'm not sure how to describe it, this roaring freight train pulsed up the center of me and just hit, boom, 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 you know, and, and then an explosion. And when it exploded, it had already reached my brain, and when it exploded, there was nothing. The entire reality just disappeared, just collapsed, and I was floating in this place that looked like it could have been outer space. I think it was maybe inner space. I'm not sure. And there were, I could see this wave of billions of little twinkling lights kind of spreading out in every direction. And you only know one thing when you enter into that place. And that one thing is, I am. That's all you know. That's all that that place is about. And I knew that I was the little twinkling lights. And that I am, that's all you could say. There was nothing, there was no awareness of myself as an individual. There was nothing about being, you know, living in Mount Clemens, Michigan, you know, on the edge of the bay with four kids and a, you know, a cat and blah, 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 and all of, you know, my life as an engineer, et cetera. I was just totally, all of that was erased. And I was floating in this place. And I have to say that even though it sounds totally boring, the bliss in that place is beyond anything that I could describe, anything that I could. There's nothing to compare to in that state of bliss. You're totally complete. You don't, there's no tomorrow. There's no yesterday. There's no nothing except just yourself and this awareness that you exist. Mm. And the power of that is absolutely unmovable, immovable, unchanging. It doesn't flicker. It doesn't do anything except be there. And then, you know, I kind of came back down to the body, and, you know, and my love was kind of hanging over me saying, are you okay? Mm. And I was like, uh-huh. Well, I knew, I knew, Penny, that we were going to get into some meaty stuff in our conversation today. I didn't think it would actually start off with you having uh, the beginnings of a sexual experience. But I want to just backtrack for a few moments because what I'm really fascinated about is the fact that you are all these things on a 3D level. We mentioned the fact you were a writer, a teacher, a consultant, a speaker. Mm-hmm a publisher, you're a naturopathic physician, you own Lily Hill Farm and Learning Center in Southwest Michigan, and you run courses in developing the gift of intuition, getting well again naturally, organic gardening, and so on. And at the same time, you're the mother of four children, and you have your own publishing company called Kelly Networks, LLC, and you publish books on subjects of spirituality and health. And at the same time, 
you have a degree in humanistic studies from Wayne State University, Detroit, and a degree in naturopathic medicine from Clayton College in Birmingham, in Alabama. And you've co-written 14 books and written six books of your own. Now, let me just read out the titles of these, because I'm leading up to a question to you. The first book that you've written is The Evolving Human, The Elves of Lily Hill Farm, Robes, A Book of Coming Changes, Getting Well Again, Naturally, From the Soil to the Stomach, Consciousness and Energy, Volume 1, which is about multidimensionality and a theory of consciousness, and the last book, Consciousness and Energy, Volume 2, New Worlds of Energy. Now, we, we want to get into the whole question of that Kundalini rising, but my question to you is, how on earth are you able to, and perhaps on earth is the question, how are you able to maintain all of this 3D life in a family situation and as a gardener and a consultant and all of that, and at the same time know that there is a spiritual experience there that you've just described that is completely out of the body. How do you maintain that balance in your life? Wow, that's a good question. Um, a couple of things I would say in response to that. Number one, when Kundalini occurs, it erases all of the obstacles to everything that you've had in your life. It also erases all of the ridiculous ideas, all of the sillinesses, all of the immaturity, all of the um, blocks to energy. And you begin to see that you are, in fact, an energetic being that has collected a few pieces of what we'll call matter along the lines of energy that move through that energy system, okay? So that's one thing. That's only a piece of the answer. The other thing that occurs is that you are, and I will say this, I did go through a long period. It took me 17 years to integrate the entire experience, and the first three years were absolutely terrifying. Um, and what I discovered was that my consciousness was creating constantly, and it never stopped. It never rested, and, and all of the thoughts and all of the worries and all of the fears manifested immediately, along with all of the other stuff, you know, the things I wanted, et cetera, or the things I was trying to do. So it, I began to see that every single step of every single day had to be the sacred path. It had to be, every step was a step in meditation. And so every every single breath in my life became the meditation that I no longer had time for. And you don't need meditation once you've had a full-blown opening. That, I mean, once in a while, um, I will sit down and actually get quiet um, when I want to think about something. It's quite a luxury. I love it. Um, but the fact of the matter is that you become extremely conscious that you're creating. And because all of your blocks, the majority of them, you still have to work through whatever remaining issues you have. That's part of the the work of of getting to be worthy of what happened to you. You know, the kundalini is a gift. 
Um, and if you're going to use it wisely and well, very quickly you realize if you have any biases, if you have any distortions, that's what you're going to create. And so it became very clear to me that um, that I I had a tremendous amount of energy. Most of the blocks to that energy were gone, and you learn through trial and error how to move that energy through and how to focus in such a way that you are, oh, gosh, what would I say, not spending energy. You're getting energy. And so I generally work a, a long day is 18 hours. An ordinary day is about 16 hours. A short day is about 14 hours. Um, I sleep, you know, when I'm not doing a research project that involves the some of the other areas of life and dimensions and consciousness. I sleep like a log. Um, I do walk in the world when I choose to. And so it becomes a way of being that becomes ordinary. It's just my ordinary way of being now. And I've stayed very quiet for a very long time because I felt like I needed to really learn some of the truths, um, you know, about about this reality that we live in. And I'm, I'm working on Consciousness and Energy Volume 3 right now with an idea to explaining a huge number of hoping to mitigate or help erase a huge number of misperceptions and distortions that exist about spirituality, about consciousness, and about this reality system in general. So, and I think, you know, for like a lot of my students, when I'm teaching a class, that's the goal in terms of, you know, they come in order to develop some intuition, but what they're really doing is clearing their energy system, um, freeing up their consciousness, and beginning to see the world through a different set of eyes. And and it's it's quite it, you know it takes a little bit of time and and it's quite a bit of fun. Um, I've discovered that people love to learn about themselves, and in fact there is nothing else to learn about. There's only the self, and that I am is at the core of that, and that doesn't budge. And once you can begin to understand that, yes, I am, and you am too, um, you know, then you realize that we we nurture one another with our attention. And there are certain ways to nurture people so that they come out of their confusion, out of their shelves. So in a sense, the entire world is feeding energy through any individual who chooses to open to that. And the result is that you live in a way that's really not obviously externally. It doesn't look much different to, well, you know, to the majority of people because um, most people are really not very awake. Um, you know, they are doing their thing and, and they are, and rightly so, they should be focused there on whatever that thing is within themselves and developing that. But, um, you know, after a while, I began to tune into, you know, what are the signs? What are the looks? What, I can see lights around people. Um, what is the light around a body doing when it's healthy? What is it doing when it's not healthy? And all of that kind of comes in to this um, operational wisdom is probably the best way to say it. Um, that allows me to feel pretty renewed and pretty refreshed. 
um, most of the time. So, okay, Penny, you know, Penny, can I okay. ask you then, um, after having that experience and you said you were writing about the misperceptions that people have spiritually, so I would like you to basically talk about some of those and also um, – what do you think people are doing? In other words, when you when you look around and you see people concerned about making money and um, surviving, really, okay, especially now when things are so crazy, what can you tell our listeners about, number one, spiritual misperceptions, uh, and number two, you know, what are they not seeing about life? And number three, you, you mentioned that when you had your Kundalini experience and you were um, aware of your I am presence, but you said you weren't aware of individuality necessarily anymore, unless I'm misunderstanding that. Oh, you understood that right. Okay. But you also, sounds like you were aware of a much bigger uh, existence than your individual self. So could you address all those three things? Yeah, um, at least I'll take a, uh, you know, a stab at it. <laughs> I'll make an effort here. Um, the it, your first question was about the misperceptions that people have about spirituality. Um, I think probably the biggest misperception is that um, you can get spirituality from the outside in if you do the right things, if you say the right things. Um, that will make you a kinder, gentler person, perhaps, but that isn't going to be true spirituality. True spirituality, there are how many people on this planet? Like 7 billion, maybe, they're estimating. That means that there are at least 7 billion valid forms of spirituality because the spirit, which is the energy that runs through each individual, is extremely unique. And the problem is that we keep trying to pour ourselves into some mold, a spiritual mold, and if I do this and I say this and I don't eat that and I, uh, you know, practice blah, 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 you know, it's kind of like pouring yourself into this mold and when you come out you're going to be, um, you know, either uh, St. Patrick or St. Francis or St. Cecilia or somebody, but you're not going to be who you are. And that's the, that is the key mistake that has to be, you know, avoided. They, we have to realize that there isn't a, quote, prescription for spirituality. It is the spirit of an individual being that must be developed. That's and wonderful. in that development, yeah, in that development, you get this unique version of energy and perception. And yes. consciousness and action. Yes. So that's the biggest mistake. No, that's an absolutely wonderful realization, let's call it, because so many people, including ourselves for a long, long time, were under the impression that, you know, we, we need to seek some kind of an experience, perhaps a Kundalini experience, but that it had to be the same as what a guru experienced, or there, or there was only right. one kind of experience, for example. And you basically liberate us all from that perception you you've you've liberated us all from that that possibility of just being stuck with with expectation and and uh, right. it's wonderful to realize that every experience is valid now one of my 
questions was actually around the blocks to energy rising. And a lot of the times people can't or are, are not willing to go through the actual procedure, let's call it, in order to remove those blocks to energy. And a lot of times we get people asking us after our shows, you know, you, you talked about this, you talked about that, but you didn't say how. Now, one of the things that I actually want to read is an excerpt from a paper that you did called Getting to Enlightenment, where you actually step out, step by step, exactly what you did. And I'd like to read this, if you don't mind, Penny, because it's very valid. Yeah, it's very valid in terms of a procedure that you involved yourself in, which anybody can follow, but you documented it. And you say, I was deeply involved in studying consciousness and thinking about embarking on a fast. My goal was a better understanding of how food influences the way we string together the perceptions that add up to a whole reality and to experiment with the further awakening of Kundalini. I had struggled mightily with a spontaneous Kundalini awakening years before, that was noisy, frightening, heat-filled, presence-filled, and highly sexual experience that was also accompanied by unlimited consciousness and unusual perceptions. Now I wanted to explore further. So I decided to begin a 40-day fast that would not be a juice fast, a fruit fast, or anything like that. It was to be a fast of only one full meal a day, at noon if possible, as simple as possible, with portions much smaller than I normally ate. The other two meals would consist of a single small serving of fruits, vegetables, bread or nuts, and there would be no sugar, caffeine or alcohol. The fast included meditation and exercise, but excluded all sexual activity. My plan was to keep written records of what I experienced and track how closely the regimen was followed without wor worrying about any lapses. I would also record my dreams to see if there were any changes in the quality of sleep consciousness. I gave myself permission to stop the experiment if I decided that it was detrimental or a waste of time. After deciding what the parameters of the experiment would be, I started the fast the very next day. Up at 5 a.m., I meditated for two hours until the rest of the family were stirring, then did the exercises, followed by breakfast, a shower, and work in our vineyard. Lunch was very small, supper was a bit more, but still limited, and by the end of the day I wrote, not feeling well, ears, throat, headache, feel down. Not sure I want to do this experiment thing. Don't know if I'll make it the whole 40 days. I keep thinking all day, this is taking forever, and it's still only day one. Now, you, you go on to say that the first two days were miserable, but by the third day I was beginning to feel better, and I wrote in my notes, found myself seeing the world as if it was clear and crisp and beautiful. Now, the reason I want to read that is because these are the kind of blockages. I, I know because I've experienced them. When you start a fast of some kind, of any kind, whether it's to lose weight or for whatever the purpose might be, the first two or three days seem to be the hardest. Can you give us your insight into that, how to get through that sense of being defeated before you even get out the starting gates? Mm, yes. Um, well, there's a couple of things, a couple of tricks. One is you start, um, you could just choose to start your fast on a three-day stretch where you can spend most of the time in better sleep. Um, I didn't have that luxury at the time, and um, and so I suffered. The second thing is that you drink a lot of water um, because what happens as soon as you stop eating, the body starts to heal. 
It starts to shovel out all of the crap and corruption, the poorly built cells, the excess stuff that you don't need. And, you know, all of that has to be eliminated. And that's the reason why you feel your head achy, your eyes itch, your ears, you know, your throat hurts. You feel like you're going to get a cold. And a lot of people do get a cold in the process of starting a fast. Um, water, lots of water helps. The third thing, which is a trick that I learned as a naturopathic physician, is that you learn how to do a coffee enema. It sounds terrible, but, you know, it, the fact of the matter is that it's a very weak coffee. It's just, you know, about two cups. When that coffee hits the mucous membrane inside the anal opening, the result is that the liver begins to just gently pulse and it dumps waste and that it has collected because the liver is responsible for filtering the blood and keeping it clean and it gets so full that it can't collect anymore and all of that is circulating in the bloodstream which is moving about 160 miles an hour and you know being distributed everywhere in the body so doing a set of coffee enemas, one set and then, you know, one coffee enema back-to-back with a second one. You know, you only it only takes 10, 15 minutes for each one. That's it. And the result is that the headache goes away, the fatigue feeling goes away, the feeling of being um, foggy, I guess would be the term, just disappears because as soon as the liver dumps what it's got, it dumps that into the... Um, into the gastrointestinal system and, you know, you, you end up getting rid of that out the back door, it then is immediately filtering and cleaning what's coming through and the result is an amazing difference mm-hmm. in how you feel. A fourth thing is that you can do something called a mustard and cayenne foot soak. It's just soak your feet in hot water with one tablespoon of dry mustard and one teaspoon of cayenne pepper for about half an hour. And that will also pull tremendous amounts of toxins out through the feet, which have great difficulty getting rid of their toxins because a lot of people have lesser circulation. So that's how you get through the first few days. Mm -hmm. And after that, the perception itself changes so dramatically that that's what carries you the rest of the way. Yes. It's, uh, well, it's you, its own self-rewarding system. You mentioned that as I entered the sixth, the sixth week, I was in such a state of luminous awareness that I no longer cared whether I maintained a physical presence on the planet or not. I felt as if I was about to fully detach from my body and become nothing but light. As this feeling deepened, paradoxically, I could see more and more creative possibilities for my life on Earth. I was excited about my work and wanted to, vo- to devote myself to it more fully. On the 38th day of the fast, I decided to stop. I could not afford to lose any more weight, and I was afraid I was going to dissolve into light. Now, <laughs> that sounds like an absolutely wonderful experience, but how... Luckily, you were a naturopath in terms of being able to look after the physical needs of the body at the same time as having this wonderful spiritual experience. What advice would you give to people who who are embarking on a spiritual journey, let's call it, and they they want to do it by way of a fast. Would you caution people to notify their doctor or to get some uh, counselor or a coach of some kind, or is it something that people can do themselves at home? 
I think it's a little bit of both. You can certainly do it yourself at home. And I did, but, you know, I had been at that point, that was 1992, I believe. So that was, what, 20 years ago, something like that, or 91, somewhere in the early 90s. And I had already had a good 14, 15 years of working with Kundalini, walking in the world, you know, lots of ability to observe the interior of what was happening in the body, as well as the whole practical thing with naturopathic stuff. So I would say in the end, bottom line, it's up to you to do it yourself. And if you rely on anyone else, there'll come a point when you will be tested to see if you're ready to stand on your own. So that's one side of it. On the other hand, I tell people, don't hesitate to get a teacher. Whether it's a good teacher or a bad teacher, you're still going to learn something. If it's a good teacher, you'll, you'll be led deeper into yourself. If it's a bad teacher, you'll really appreciate the good ones when you get them. So either way, you're going to have an aha somewhere along the line that, you know, that was helpful, this was not helpful. And you have to come to a point at which you're not afraid to reach out, and, at, and yet you're not relying on someone else. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Now, let us remind our listeners, you're listening to Angel Rose and Ahanu on the Honest to God series, and we're speaking with our special guest today, Penny Kelly. Yeah, Penny, can I go back to uh, the question I had asked you previously? I wanted to know, um, with everything that you've experienced, you know, what are people doing here? On Earth, in other words, if you can have an experience of yourself as a being of light, why do we incarnate? What happens to bring us down into a physical existence? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, that's you asked one of the questions you asked earlier was, "What are people not seeing about life?" And I think that question you just asked ties right into that earlier question. What are we doing here? Um, the fact of the matter is that. I hear people talking all the time about, you know, they're going to develop and this is their last life and they're out of here, you know, boom. It, it's a terrible place, it's suffering, it's crazy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think, oh, <laughs> you know, I did used to think that way years and years ago. What I think people are not seeing about life is that this is a system. It's a system that starts with a planet. It develops into organisms and plants and animals. And then these humans that become kind of, we'll say it's metaphorical, but kind of like the brain cells of the planet. We have, at this point, failed to take into account that we're all in this together. And so I'll just kind of come to the bottom line without going through all the ways that I, all the things that I discovered that got me to this awareness. But the bottom line is that the, it is the responsibility or the duty, it is the destiny, whatever word you want to use, for a system, a reality system, to evolve to become an eternal system. That is, that destiny exists for the planet, the plants, the animals, and, you know, the people, us, that's us. 
what there was a comment that one of my friends, an elf named Alvi that I've been talking with for years, made oh gosh, years and years ago. Um, it was just a little comment, and I was totally ignorant at the time. But the comment was something like, "I don't think, or, or we can't go any further without you." I asked him why he was talking to me. Why had he picked me to communicate with when there was a whole world of humans out there? And he said, first reason is because you can communicate. Most people can't. Second reason is because we have to start reaching out or you guys aren't going to get it. We can't go any further without you. And I was like, what? You know, and I was too proud at the time to ask what that was about, but eventually what I what I became aware of was, and, and there was, it's a long, circuitous journey, but I eventually realized that the whole system, the planet, the plants, animals, and people have to evolve together. So humans come to the earth, and one becomes an artist, and one becomes an engineer, one becomes a a gardener and, you know, somebody else builds, you know, some houses or whatever. And somebody else makes dishes and somebody else makes equipment and et cetera, et cetera. And each one has a passion. Each individual being should, and I use that term very consciously, should be following their passion that passion will lead them to an in-depth understanding of how something exists, how it looks, how it operates, how it interacts, etc. And that knowledge becomes the special province of that individual. If you then took that individual with that specialized knowledge and put that individual together with 7 billion others or even 5 billion or 600,000 or whatever, however many people are in the system, what you get as they all evolve together is a group of specialists, each of whom completely and in great detail carries the knowledge, the pictures, the understanding, the communications of whatever their specialty is. And the result is as that group of individuals becomes more and more conscious and more and more powerful as creators, they can recreate the systems, the symbols, the interactions. They can recreate every detail of that world in a way that is made of light and therefore no longer subject to death. And so well, what you... Yeah, that, that's, that's what I wanted to stop and ask you about when you were saying that... Oh, go ahead that all planets were evolving to become eternal life systems. I mean, I I understand that to mean um, that there is no death, but could you give, give me your interpretation of that? Um, well, you said it pretty clearly there. <laughs> um, you know, no death means no death. Yeah, because I um, never thought, ever death, since a little girl, I never thought death was supposed to happen. You know, I it didn't right, make right. it didn't make any sense to me when I was young. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what what I'll say in response to that kind of question, um, and this was something that I thought was really um, sacrilegious. The little men in brown robes 
um, which were a group of these bright, you know, amazing little monk-like men who appeared and disappeared from my living room for a couple of years and really gave me millions of pictures of the future. You know, just all kinds, some experiential, you know, um, it was really something. But they said in the middle of a lot of that, you know, here we want you to look at our pictures, they made this comment. You people don't understand that you're creating it all. You think that, or you say, you have a saying among you that says, the only thing you cannot escape are death and taxes. And what we're going to say to you is that you impose the taxes on yourself, and death is a mistake in thinking. And I thought that was the most outrageous thing I had ever heard at that time. Mm -hmm. And I put that aside and thought, you know, I didn't want to put it in the book, but I did, because I had to put a lot of things in there that I didn't want. <laughs> um, but, you know, over the years, I began to play with that. I began to get hints in different directions, um, you know, of what they were talking about. And when, you know, when I finally, I visited the earth as a completed earth, um, an evolved earth, an earth made of light, it was an incredible experience. And I'll just say that there was no death, there was no sickness, there was nothing ugly, there was nothing that was, oh gosh, everything was um, in communication with everything else. And I, I just as an example of something outrageous that I had a hard time with, I watched a gardener talk to a tree and say, could you just move over about eight feet? And that tree just sort of dissolved itself down into its roots, and a, a few minutes later came up eight feet over right where the gardener was pointing to. Oh, wow. And it was this amazing kind of... I want to I want to be of service to you that everybody in that world had. And I, there are lots of examples I could give because I visited that world three different times and didn't really understand what you know why they had taken me there yes. or what they wanted to show me. But that's I see now that that's the world that it was a duplicate of this earth, except there was no war, no sickness, no anger, no hurt. No sorrow, no depression, nothing. Yes, that's like it was uh, all joy. Jesus saying to the mountain uh, to move, and, and it moved. Now let us let us that's take right. this opportunity to, because traditionally we take a, a little bit of a break right here. But we want to thank our sponsor, which is Diamond Sun Hosting, who have been consciously hosting spiritual websites since 1993. Their address is diamondsunhosting.com. And if you wish to sponsor an episode of the Honest to God series with Angel Rose. Anahanu, simply contact us at angelrose at angelrose.com. That's A-I-N-G-E-A-L-R-O-S-E.com. Let's just take a 29-second break. We'll be right back after this. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. The Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Great, welcome back. We're speaking with Penny Kelly and we're talking about all kinds of fascinating subjects, uh, nature spirits and Kundalini rising and the growth of spirituality. One of the things about your fast, Penny, was that 
there was two lessons that you wrote about that you got out of that fast and one important insight was about food and you said it's it's uh, it's not so much the kind of food that matters it's the quantity that's the key that you ate everything from apples and carrots to stuffed chicken and pumpernickel bread but you ate really really small portions can you tell us a little bit about that because there's such a fad on you know, vegetarianism and veganism and all of that kind of thing and people staying away from meat. But you're basically saying eat anything but just eat in small portions. Am I am I right in saying that? Yes. Yes, you are. Um, let me share an experience um, that kind of gives us an eye toward where that actually goes. I was deep in some research and it was June, I think, 2004, and um, I had uh, I, I entered into this state of consciousness in which I became this huge, glowing ball of golden light. And, and when I say huge, it was probably 30, 40 feet in diameter. Okay, I was I live in an old barn, and I was up in the hayloft, um, which is where my apartment was. And um, I was standing there in that state of consciousness. And it's a state in which you are all-seeing, all-knowing, and everywhere present. You're one with every single thing. And, and uh, just to give you a sense of the, of the, you know, the power of that state, in that state, I, I was standing beside my bed, and I knew every single fiber personally as a personal friend in the quilt on my bed i knew where that fiber had grown on which cotton plant in what field it had grown in i knew who had picked it who had milled it who had spun it who had made it into a quilt who worked on that quilt who shipped that quilt who sold it every single detail of the history of that of every single fiber and the same was true for every molecule of wood in the walls. I knew every tree that those molecules, those two-by-fours and beams came from, every single grain of sand in the dishes. And the key thing here to relate to the thing about food was that in my freezer, there were a number of packages of meat that were cut, wrapped, and frozen. And those pieces of meat were still alive were completely aware that they were in the freezer, cut, wrapped, frozen, waiting to be eaten. And in that instant, there was a, an understanding in me that said, oh, this is why people who are highly spiritually evolved don't eat meat. They don't eat plants either, for that matter. But this, we'll stick to the meat for the moment. Because they don't want to eat another living conscious thing because they don't need to. They are taking in light directly from the source and they wouldn't dream of eating their friends. And I think that sums up in a very powerful way something that we have tried to do in a very sort of, I'm going to use some farm language here, back-assward kind of way. We try to, you know, be vegetarian so that we can be more spiritual. It doesn't do anything. If you haven't done the developmental work on the light body, 
then being vegetarian just very often just takes down the physical body. Some people are not meant to eat meat. Some people are not meant to eat fruit. Some people are not meant to eat vegetables, although almost everybody eats vegetables. The fact of the matter is you have to eat in accordance with the energy of your DNA. And that DNA demands certain energies that come from the foods in order to renew and restore itself constantly. And if you eat anything else, you will, it's kind of like you're going over the top. You know, you, you're not just restoring, you're taking the system down a little bit because now you have too much other stuff in there. It's a finely tuned energy system that we have. And what we have going are, just like you said, all kinds of fads, all sorts of misbeliefs, misperceptions, things about food, and all kinds of judgments about one another because he eats this and she drinks that and they do this and they don't do that. So, Penny, how do you, how do you find out, you know, as an individual what your own system needs? Because we did come to a place uh, last year when we were in North Carolina it seemed to be a natural involvement where we just wanted more uh, sunlight as food. You know, we wanted to go look out into the sun in the morning and be nourished that way. Now, we've I've kind of reverted back to my old habits, but, you know, I, I'm aware that it seemed to be a natural, you know, way to be or a natural desire where, like you say, you didn't want to eat your friends anymore. And you realized you were you were made of color and light, so you know that's really the source of food. But like you mentioned, not not everybody can do that. You know they'll starve to death if they're not ready. So, but but mm-hmm. but before that, you know, how do you know if you're somebody that you know needs meat or needs to be a vegetarian? Or I mean, how how can you tell? I think there are places where you can go and get tested. Now, these places are not generally open to the, what I'm going to call the general public. Um, but I do know that my doctor, um, Dr. Gonzalez in New York, um, is is one who does that kind of testing, okay? Um, the second thing, uh, and I think this is probably even more critical, is that the human body as an energy system is far more dynamic than we allow it to be. And what I mean by that is that there is a almost like a cycle of things that you will move through. For a while, it'll be okay to be vegetarian. And I do tell people, you know, if you've not been eating meat and you get sick, it's time to eat a little meat perhaps. If you've not been eating vegetables and you get sick, it's time to eat some vegetables or some fruit or whatever. If you've had too much sugar, stop the sugar. Um, all of those things. Food, I think our food wisdom used to be a critical part of our, of our civilization and we have lost that once the marketing started, which I talk about in my book, Getting Well Again Naturally. Um, it just, there was a huge awareness, uh, again, I guess I'll call it an awareness, a huge, um, series of ahas that I had around food when I was studying naturopathic medicine and also trying to heal myself of severe rheumatoid arthritis. 
and and I succeeded, and and I learned a great deal. But I think we have, as a population, not allowed ourselves to move from. I feel like being vegetarian today, or this week, or this month, or even this year. I feel like I need a little bit of steak today, and it's the humility of needing that animal, needing that plant that we have not integrated into ourselves, the gratitude of of feeling, oh, my God, you know, there is something there, you know, that I need to be eating. That thing, whatever it is, plant, animal, um, is giving up its life for me or it's becoming part of my energy system. My God, let me honor that energy and bring all of us, both of us, whatever, um, into a place of higher consciousness, into a place where everything I do honors life. So it, I think, you know, there are a few places. Um, there might be probably to do some research on the web. You have to watch out for charlatans and things like that. Um, but it, really and truly, we need to be eating in a much more dynamic way, and listening to the body would be the final thing I would say in answer to your question. Um, it is really important to follow um, the like the consciousness of the body when it's hungry for an apple or it's really, um, you know, it wants water. Most hunger masquerades um, is a masquerade for thirst. Um, we really and truly want liquid and um, food is a lot of the chemical food is really destructive to consciousness. It is not, it doesn't nurture um, life. Uh, you can eat a lot of junk and prepared foods and stuff like that, but it isn't going to have the frequencies in those chemicals that are needed to restore the basic frequencies of the energy system that make a body run smoothly and well. And so your stomach will be full, but little by little, in a way that's almost imperceptible, consciousness begins to falter and to become less clear, and it doesn't, you lose will. You lose the will to do or make something happen, to pursue your dream, to follow your heart, to handle the hassle that you have to handle if you set up something the structure of a life, that's not really what you want. People will often say, well, you know, I, I, I can't do that because I have to do this. Yeah, they don't have the energy available. Most of that is food. That's right. That's right. They, the, people do not understand the tremendous impact that food has on And what's your thought, Penny, on the GMO foods? Uh, pretty much a disaster. <laughs> um yeah, um, it's a game changer in the system. Um, we will need, and fortunately, maybe the GMO thing will become irrelevant. Um, you mentioned needing to go out and look at light. I think we're coming to a time, and we're probably, you know, over the next three, four hundred years, going to move into a, a way of being in which we understand how to use frequencies, um, how to feed ourselves wisely and well, and a huge part of that will be using light, healing mm -hmm. with light. Um, lots of that kind of stuff is coming. Right. 
So that's all the stuff, a lot of that I saw when I was with the Little Men in Brown Robes, and we went to visit, I think it was uh, 2082 mm-hmm. and 2413, and then we spent a lot of time looking at the first 25 years of this century, which we're now halfway through. So are you are you seeing so. a positive future for the Earth then? Oh, my gosh, yes. I'm so glad <laughs> well, so you said that. I am so- Yeah, I really am. Um, You know, one of the things that uh, you have to get to is keeping your eye on what you're creating and what what is coming apart is always interesting. I mean, that is true. There is a lot of drama happening. You know, there's a lot of stuff that is being discovered. Just like the Little Men in Brown Robes said, they used to talk this back in... 79, 80, or 80, 81, 82, etc., about this thing called the global network, which we didn't have an internet at that time. And I was like, what? You know, and so they said, this, you know, over this global network would come tons of information about the corruption that was happening and that there were whole teams on the planet that were here solely to take down the old system. And then there were whole teams that were here solely to build up the new systems. And I got a little bit despairing about 10 years ago that we were ever going to see any signs that the new was coming together. But I see it now, and I'm really quite excited. It's a marvelous world that we're um, in the midst of creating. And and we only have one thing to learn. And that is how do we work together in spite of the fact that some of our usual systems may not be there. How do we feed one another? How do we dance with one another? How do we talk to one another? How do we plan and carry out big tasks, global tasks Mm -hmm. perhaps? How do we, you know, work with Mother Nature to restore some, you know, to allow her uh, our interference at restoration is really a huge interference. So there's lots of things that I see that are slowly, slowly coming um, together. And I'm just like, woohoo! Penny, yeah. I have to say to you that you, you, you may or may not know that we've interviewed many, many, many people on various aspects of consciousness and spirituality and so on. And there was one gentleman we had who had four near-death experiences, for example. But they, they all tended to be very spiritual, let's say, and ungrounded in, in the sense of not providing any practical way for people to, to get a grip on it or to understand it or to begin practicing something like this themselves. Mm. And you've outlined some absolutely wonderful ways and also the fact that you're a very, very practical person. You see you have a very grounded outlook on life and a very sensible and grounded outlook on the growth of spirituality. Now, we want to get your web address or a phone number or an email address or somehow that our listeners can get in touch with you. We're going to give it out at the end of the program, but let's do it now so that we, we, we make sure that people know how to contact you. Okay. Okay. Um, you can get to me at my website, which is www.pennykelly.com, and the address and phone number are on the website. Um, you can call to the office here directly at the farm, 
The uh, phone number here is 269-624-6022. You can write a letter. The address here is actually uh, 32260 88th Avenue, and that's in a little town called Lawton, Michigan, L-A-W-T-O-N-M-I, this is for Michigan, 49065. Okay, that's great. And it, yeah, and people can actually listen back to the archives as well if they want to pick up that address again. Now, okay. you mentioned in your discourse about the fast that there were two major lessons that you got around joy. And the first one oh, was to yeah. notice a moment of that feeling of joy and then extend that feeling through time. And the second thing you said was that and perhaps more importantly, it was that your sense of joy was an overriding presence, even when something awful happens. In other words, you enjoy every single emotion and feeling that passes through your life mm -hmm. as a human, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you can't play that ain't it awful game with people in order to fit in. But you're loving whatever it is that you're complaining about. Now, I find that very, very grounding and very satisfying in the sense that it's, it's so important to be in the here and now with every emotion that's passing through. Can you talk to us for a moment about how that impacts you in a practical way since that awakening that you've had? Um, yeah, the, the, I think probably the biggest thing um, is, is that when, when you find a moment of joy and you notice that and you make a clear decision to extend that, that then becomes like a pool of peace. I call it my pool of peace. And I always have one toe in a pool of peace. And the practical application or outcome of that, what I discovered, was that I was always in that pool of peace. Sometimes all of me and sometimes just my little toe. <laughs> but you can't forget it. And, and, and you don't want to either. And what happens is you become free of all of the, um, could I say hooks, maybe? All of the expectations, all of the demands of people and things around you. And so um, I, I have an example. Let me give this example. I was, I had a meeting here, a, a several um, educational people from you know, the state of Michigan. They came from Lansing, which is our state capital. And we were having a meeting in the kitchen of the learning center here, sitting around having coffee. We were talking about various programs that we could put together for uh, kids at various levels. They were very interested in the spiritual end of things and how to embed that into a program for advanced kids. And so in the middle of this meeting, with these very important gentlemen and, and one woman, um, my husband comes stomping into the kitchen and he's furious about something. I don't know what, I, to this day, I don't really know what he was upset about because I saw it um, from a different point of view. He was yelling and complaining about something, and the normal reaction of most people would be to get upset, to be embarrassed, to get angry back, to wish the, you know, the earth would open up and swallow him or you or both. <laughs> and I just it was 
completely aware that he had some kind of a problem, and it wasn't mine. And if he wanted to behave like that in front of these guests, he could do so. That was his choice. And I said to him at the moment, um, I don't understand what your what your problem is, but if you can just wait, you know, half an hour we're going to break, and let me come and see, you know, what's going on. Um, why don't you get a cup of coffee and, and just, you know, write down the parameters of whatever it is. And so he took off, and there was dead silence around the table. And I, I was like, where did we leave off with this conversation? <laughs> you know, it was like a moment of I was trying to regroup um, and pick up the threads of what we had been talking about. And all of a sudden, one of the men said, Jesus, you know, just kind of this little, uh, like, whew. and And he said, what strength I've never witnessed. I've never seen that kind of strength. And I thought, for a moment, it was like, oh, okay, um, yeah. All right. And then they all got off track talking about what they would have done if their wife or their husband had behaved like that in front of company, et cetera. And I was like, oh, okay. And and I said, when somebody is upset, if you get upset in return, you're just being hooked. You know, you're allowing them to dump all of that hurt, anger, frustration, whatever, on you. Why should you pick that up? Why would you want to take that on? Why not see that that's his issue, and maybe you can do something, and maybe you can't. But now is not the right. moment. And so it was It was a moment of learning. Yeah, and, and I think it's that kind of thing for the rest yeah, of Yeah, and world. I think it's important, too. You made a comment a little bit earlier before your story about um, being able to allow all emotions. And I, I think that that's mm-hmm. really important because I, I do know that, Sometimes people think they're on a spiritual path and they, you know, they can't have an experience of any negative emotion. And, uh, yeah, yeah, they think that, you know, it's always got to be good. They always have to be, uh, I mean, so if you could talk to me a little bit about that, only because um, we were talking about being very conscious of what you're creating uh, with, with your thoughts. So how do those two go together? You know, allowing yourself to feel every emotion and then being being mindful of what you're creating. Okay. I think you really kind of said um, a big piece of it right there. Being conscious of what you're feeling is really an important piece. You have to be conscious of what you're feeling. And most people are conscious of it in some, even in a vague way. Um, sometimes they're not, but most of the times they are. And you have to be um, aware, asking yourself, um, what is the usefulness of this? Um, You know, can I do something with this? For instance, most anger is change energy that hasn't had an opportunity to be expressed in a timely way, and so piles up and becomes explosive and destructive, et cetera. But um, sadness, sorrow, grief, et cetera, feel it while you're feeling it and let it go and keep in mind one cre- critical statement and or a, it's just a critical piece actually it's not so much a statement as it is a way of being in the world if you are responding to something that is not happening in front of you 
then those in the spiritual world consider that to be a little bit crazy. That's considered insanity. If you're, re if you're not responding to something that is in front of you, that's also considered to be in a little bit of insanity. In other words, to be angry because your mother spanked you or hit you or your father beat you when you were 16 and now you're 50 is insanity. The father is not beating you now. Why yes. are you still responding? The mother is not spanking you now. The teacher is not embarrassing you now. Feel the feeling and be done with it. Feel it right. all the way through. That is wonderful advice. Now, we are coming up to the last section of our program today, and we've got so much to talk about. We're speaking with Penny Kelly, and you're listening to Angel Rose and Ahanu on the Honest to God series. We have a number of callers who, wait, who are waiting to ask you questions also. So let us just very, very quickly um, say that we want to ask you about communicating with nature spirits and so on. But before we do, one of the things that struck me was of these fabulous lessons, let's call them lessons for want of a better word, that you got out of your uh, Kundalini rising experience. We talked about the food thing that you learnt. We talked about the lesson on joy that you, you learnt. And then you said that you also learned some things about sex and the fact that, indeed, the first Kundalini experience was when you were about to make love with your husband. But you, you say that all over arousal is what you get when you enter into highly awakened states of consciousness. Part of the task of getting to enlightenment is learning to hold intense levels of arousal without dispersing that energy. As enlightenment occurs, there's a steady state of joy that shades into ecstasy and bliss because this is the nature of light and what we call God or Source. The arousal, I felt, was only a taste of that bliss and learned to live in a state of continuous arousal without sexual activity was literally learning to live in bliss. And you go on to say that holding the arousal leads to the turning on of the lights within and around you. Thus, there may be some literal truth to the phrase getting turned on. Now, talk to us about that, because this is a subject, as we know, on a negative agenda where sexual arousal and the whole marketplace of sex is, is, is pervasive throughout our, our, our planet. But you're talking about using sexual energy in a very, very positive way. Give us your insight into that. Well, you know, um, I think sex is greatly misunderstood. In fact, that's one of the subjects I'm addressing in Volume 3. Um, the sexual experience is supposed to be, for human beings, a move into that kundalini experience, a move in which you enter into the void of yourself. They, they, the ancients called it the void. They, they also called it the I am. And when you move into that, you move up in frequency, intensely high frequencies, to the point where everything is hardly moving at all. It's just not, you're in absolute utter stillness. Um, there's this bliss. So what, what we could be doing with sex is learning to hold that energy of feeling that everything is turned on, everything is alive within us, and just hold that. Because what happens is that we begin to accustom the body-mind system to a higher frequency level than what we had before. 
And as you gradually, gradually move up in terms of your overall frequency, you get to a place where you're just naturally always turned on. And the last thing, and when I say turned on, there's a sensuousness and a sexual feeling that you have, but without the demand. It becomes instead obvious that the last thing you want to do is to disperse that through the sexual act. The sexual act actually becomes a sacrificial act in some ways. And and I you know I know that that is there's a lot more that I could say I know that that runs counter to what our culture has been taught about sex we have been taught some of the most destructive and stupid and wasteful kinds of things um, we have to begin you know looking at the truth of what sex is so you know the question I ask people is why is there sex. You know, it, it's not about creating children. That is the last thing that it's about. That is something that was made up, you know, by people who don't know. And so the sexual experience is something that, um, you know, if you can get to a place where you can just hold that, um, what happens is you become very, very magnetic and you become very attractive to people, every, people, plants, animals, everything around you. And there you have the essence in many ways of what most people consider to be power in this world, the ability to attract people. Now, if you're going to attract them and play power games and just see if you can get them to do what you want, well, you know, that really isn't going to do you or them much good, but that is a lot of what we see very powerful executives, corporate executives, have a tremendous amount of sexuality, and they waste it, you know, by having sex with everything and everybody they can get their hands on sometimes in a way that's destructive to them, never realizing that that's part of their power. And they are, in effect, you know, just um, throwing it off in every direction and not using it wisely or well. The idea being that as you move away, I'm going to use these terms specifically, as you move away from being totally human to beginning to turn into light, because enlightenment is when the body turns into light, pure and simple. It's not all that other stuff that people talk about, understanding, you know, wisdom. Yeah, you, those come as a, as a result of turning into light, but what you get, when you have turned into light is this state of bliss that's part of the experience. And it's, you know, at, at this level, we have a lot to learn about sex. So it's a very powerful thing. It is a powerful thing, and it really, really does need to be discussed more, Penny. And maybe you could come on again and give us more about that. But I just, I have one I question about what is the... What is the drive, especially especially for men, I'd say, that makes them always want to um, release that energy through sex? I mean, it's it's something men use to manipulate women, and not that women ever do it too, because they do. But what is that? What is that drive? What's really going on there? 
It's the difference in the kind of energy system. The male energy system is very focused, and the female energy system is very dispersive. And so the result is the energy moving through the male system is something that um, they're going to try to focus in a particular way on a particular individual, etc. Now, if you learn to move that up through the body-mind system, whether you're male or female, that whole drive goes into another level, and it becomes a drive toward uh, becoming light, toward entering the realm of light, um, and yet still maintaining a form that looks like a human body. You move away from the body a little bit, but you're still able to maintain that body of light here. So women, you know, they're, they tend to disperse energy in every direction. Um, their task is really to gather it a little bit. And so you put the two together, and the male ends up with his focus, causing the female to focus in one particular time and place on the moment for the moment of sexual activity. And so there's a, a learning process that's going on in which the male, uh, hopefully, if the sexual experience is done correctly, it will move up through both individuals and will create this tremendous impact on the brain. And once that impact, once consciousness has opened in that way, it cannot go back. And um, and everything changes. Everything changes. Yeah, can I just ask you really quickly, too, Penny, because I know we're winding down, but you okay. keep sparking other questions. But can you just address for people, um, in my opinion, the error that many people have where they think that the sexual act is love? Oh, <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, let me just say the sexual act may include love, but it is not. The sexual act is an act of moving the attention of the individual from the human world-based uh, set of frequencies to the God world-based or spirit world or whatever you want to call that world, to the eternal world system of lights. Uh, love is something altogether different. Love is... Um, an emotion, it's a, it, it's energy in motion and it is an attractive force that is to be used by an individual to create according to their passion. And I, I won't go into that a whole bunch because we do have, I don't wanna, I wanna have time for people to be able to ask questions, but, um, love is a, it's not even, it doesn't have anything to do with romance, although there may be some romantic feelings. It's a force that pulls things together. That's basically okay. the definition of love. Let's go to a caller here in area code 504. Go ahead, caller. Okay, I guess that person doesn't want to speak, but they're on hold. Let's try 570. Go ahead. Yeah, that's okay. Sometimes we do have a number of callers that will just use that call-in number to listen in, and that's per uh, that's perfectly good. Now, okay. let us let us take this time to actually do a little recap because we do want to have you back, Penny. We're we're fascinated by your your take on a number of these subjects, which is, as I said before, very grounded and a lot of times very different to the kind of highfalutin <laughs> dogma that we get from a, a new age type of an approach. But we 
we've, you've spoken to us about the Kundalini rising and your experience of Kundalini. You've talked about using coffee enemas and so on and embarking on a, a fast all about that and you've talked about the quantities of food that you used and you gave us a very very good rundown on that whole concept of being vegan and vegetarianism but one of the, the, the things that I'm going to go through now are actually some of the statements that you've made in the course of our conversation today and you've said that consciousness creates constantly you said every day must be the sacred path that Kundalini is a gift and if you have distortions, you will create them. And we talked about all the various misperceptions that people have about spirituality and that you can get spirituality from the outside in. You also mentioned that it is the responsibility of a physical system to evolve into a spiritual system, that death is a mistake in thinking and that you must eat according to your DNA, the human body, as an energy system, is far more dynamic than we allow it to be. And you also said that it's really important to follow the consciousness of the body and that most hunger is actually thirst masquerading as a desire for food. Most people do not understand the impact food has on consciousness. You said that a huge change is coming in 2082, and you mentioned one other date, I think it was 2214, where all of us will be living on light. There are whole teams here to take down the old system, and whole teams are here to build the new, and to always keep one toe in the pool of peace. You did give us some fantastic advice on the sexual act, and you said that the sexual experience is meant to be the move into the void, that we could learn to hold the experience of the high frequency of sexual energy, that there's sexual energy, I'm sorry, that there is a, a sexual experience in being turned on and you become magnetic and attractive through using it correctly, that the sexual act actually becomes sacrificial in some sense and creating children is the last thing that sex is about and that sexual energy can rise to become an experience of enlightenment. These are absolutely wonderful statements. And, and uh, can you just give us a little summary of your, your, your take on all of that? Oh, wow. Well, I think, um, you know, what I would say at this point is that there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of stuff being written out there um, that I think is misleading. Uh, but there are gems of truth in in it here and there. And I, what I would really love to see happen is that people begin to take um, seriously the fact that we need to develop our consciousness if we're going to have any different kind of world. Because the if there's a law that operates in this in in the I am. And the law is you have total freedom to create. Consciousness is the motion of, or consciousness is the feeling of energy. It's the feeling aspect of energy. And energy is the motion aspect of consciousness. So consciousness and energy are really where we first become individual. When we move from being, you know, in that I am state where there is nothing else except yourself, to that first move into duality, which is, oh, I am and 
there's something happening around me. I am and somebody else is out there, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We, as we move into that, as we get to the point that we're, um, you know, wanting to have a better world, um, we're going to have to develop consciousness. And if we don't, the law is that the world, the reality system, will self-destruct. Okay. And that is why God, if you will, that energy, the I am, the, the source, it, it is, it's not really a person at all. So there's no nothing like that operating. But there's just a rule, a law that says that world, that reality system, brings itself together, and either it evolves to become an eternal system or it artificially. And so there's no reason to worry. Bear with us, Penny, as we squeeze in these few little announcements here. Remember, the Eight Steps to Freedom is available at 8stepstofreedom.com. Angel Rose's book, A Time of Change, is available at atimeofchange.info. And her new book can be pre-ordered at thenatureofreality.info. Remember, our Mystical and Sacred Sites Tour of Ireland is available from mysticalireland.holistic.ie and our group Akashic Records meetings take place every Thursday evening in San Diego. You can find that on meetup.com at Akashic Records Group. Remember to opt in to angelrose.com by going to a-i-n-g-e-a-l-r-o-s-e.com and you will get all kinds of free e-books and that kind of thing. So go to ahanu.com also for free pictures and so on. Let us now remind our listeners that that was a fantastic interview that we've had today with Penny Kelly. She can be contacted at pennykelly.com and we will have her back again. Penny, let us say thanks to you. It's been an absolutely wonderful experience. You're so Thanks, welcome. Penny. We'll be in contact. Okay. <laughs> All right. It was wonderful for me, too. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. With love, blessing, and thank you for listening to Ahanu and Angel Rose on the Honest to God series. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. The Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu.